folks. Welcome to another episode of the Fabricators Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Young. As you know, I've worked with hundreds of folks who own and run their own businesses, both in this industry and others. And when I talk with them, I frequently get into discussion about what their exit strategy looks like, when do they plan to leave the business, how, what does that whole scenario look like. And as a result, I get a lot of questions about what's involved in the process of selling a business. And while I have been around a lot of these, around several sales, and while I've been involved in a few of them, I'm not the expert that can answer all those questions. So what I've decided to do is put together a series of podcasts about this. In the first few podcasts, we're going to talk to a fab shop owner who owned a shop for a while and sold it recently. So we'll talk about his personal experience. And in the next few episodes after that, we're going to talk to a professional business broker who grew up a bit in the stone industry. So he's got kind of both of those experiences. I want to show the process of selling the business both from the owner's point of view and also some technical information from a broker's point of view. The whole idea is to, as you start putting together your plans for eventually exiting your business, helping you figure out how to get ready for that. What's that process look like and what are some things you maybe need to know? In this first series, the fab shop owner I'm going to talk to is somebody who hopefully you already know. His name is Aaron Crowley. Aaron was, a fa- he got into the business when he was 17 years old. Uh, he, uh, he eventually started up his own shop, ran it for uh, almost 20, around 20 years, and then he just recently sold that shop. So you may know Aaron from his very well-known Fab Lab podcast. And if not, you probably know him as the inventor of the no-lift install cart. And so, as uh, as what typically happens with Aaron, uh, when he and I get talking, it's it's tough to stay structured. We we really get into a lot of different aspects of any topic that we're in. So these episodes with him won't be that structured. But in general, in the first one, we're going to talk about kind of what his experience was going through selling the business. In the second episode, we're going to talk about how he handled his employees during that sales process so that they were comfortable staying on with the new owner, which is a, is a big thing a lot of folks don't think about. The third episode, we're going to talk more about how to get prepared for the process uh, and some more details around it, plus some takeaways that kind of after the fact, after the sale. So I think they're really, really good information for fab shop owners. And as I said, these are not, these conversations with Aaron are not highly structured. So what we're going to do is we're just going to join that conversation in process. Appreciate that. Um, I think really my only, my main purpose is to get folks thinking about the reality of, of selling their business. You know, uh, the, you know, the, the, why would you want to sell? What do you need to get out of it financially? What's your business really worth? What's the process like? When do you start getting ready for that? You know, all those kind of things. Uh, what is it that impacts the value of your business? You know, you, we, we talked about that from time to time. So I think it's just kind of wrapping all this up from, uh, from a fab, former fab shop owner's perspective what that process looks like. I'm going to, as you know, I'm going to be talking with Chase and, um, interviewing him from a, from a broker's perspective. 
you know, what, what do they wish sellers knew about the process and kind of getting into those details. Yeah. And we're going to do two or three episodes there, I think. Okay. So I'm just trying I, to get folks I, thinking about this and, and ready for it to some degree. To the, maybe we can work this in since you're going to be talking to a broker. One of the points I make in the financial, just being diligent and maintaining good financials is that the buyer is the least of the important people in that equation. You have to convince the broker and more importantly, you have to convince the bank that this is a good investment because they're not going to lend the money on something that looks iffy or, or questionable. Yeah. And um, in the brokers, the same way, he's he's looking at your numbers going, is this legit? Or I, I smell a rat here, you know, and those brokers are looking at these numbers every day. So yeah. you're, you think you're going to pull a fast one on one of those two parties and you might be able to you might be able to hoodwink the buyer because he's so excited. You are not going to be able to hoodwink those other two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, stakeholders in this equation. Um, and so, anyway, yeah, so that was bank, broker, and buyer were the three the three people you got to convince with your uh, financials. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, to the extent that that, you know, maybe maybe feeds into your conversation with Chase. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he'll, uh, well, let's talk about it in our conversation with you too, you know, because you lived it. Okay. And then, um, yeah, I'm sure as we get into valuation, I, but I think what you've got to say will carry a lot more weight because you've been through the process. Yeah, that's the key. So um, Chase, I think, just offers an additional perspective that's that's good for folks to understand. So just trying to, yeah, sure. again, just trying to help folks out. Okay. Is that part of it? Is that, is that integrated in the form of part of the exit strategy? Yeah, in terms of the motivation, and and I think that in, in looking back, I think – having some two there's two things going on there number one i was realizing i just and i'll i'll we know it was growing to the point we had to put that robot in and i didn't have room in my shop and so it was like crap we gotta now we gotta go lease a building there was no real estate available so the place we found was an hour away and then my my business partner drops this bombshell on me i'm retiring my like, fantastic hmm. yeah I got and I got a, I got two businesses an hour away from each other. I, that just sounds like hell on earth. I don't I already don't like doing this, and that was like kind of really the impetus. Like this is just not the life I want to live. I am not willing, if I can alter the circumstances, I do not want to be in that position from a quality of life standpoint. And so that was really the driving sort of a catalyst to go, okay, I got to get out of the countertop shop because I've done that, been there, I'm done. Okay, so um, this wasn't, so no lift wasn't really, um, wasn't necessarily part of an exit strategy and, and selling your business, there wasn't necessarily an exit strategy per se, although you had thought about that earlier, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But had I not had something else to go to, the transaction, the timeline would have looked very different for me. Um, so, because the way I looked at it, no lift appeared to me at the time to be a much bigger opportunity. And it's like I can do two things poorly, or I can just fully invest myself in one thing that I believe has a lot more potential upside. Right. And so I looked at at Crowley's is like the sooner I get whatever my cost of exit is, that's freeing me up to go do something where my time is much better spent. Where had I not, if it was just like, Hey, I'm just ready to retire. I couldn't have sold Crowley's for what I sold it for 
in the timeline, it would have looked very different. So that was, so I had a unique set of circumstances. So that's one of my other, I guess, recommendations to people is you need to be thinking about what you're going to do next. And, and, and whereas I think a lot of times the, just the desire for relief, just temporary relief from the pressure cooker scenario is, is like so appealing. It's just like, I don't care what, I just need a break. Um, but man, you, you, you want that break and you get to the edge of the cliff and now it's like, pull the trigger. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Yeah. And so I think that's to me thinking about what you're going to do next and having that as a, as a part of your strategy from the get go is really important. Um, mine was more circumstantial and I just found myself in that situation. It wasn't right. part of a plan. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, if you don't have that, and I, um, I've heard other people say that it's pretty, it's not uncommon. I don't want to say if it's pretty common. It's not uncommon for sellers of their business to get to the edge of a transaction and back out at the last second. Yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of stories about that myself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. People, uh, people anyway, do we, that because they really haven't. And I can elaborate on some of that and, and, you know, well, I think, I think the whole issue of, of um, having a plan for selling your business, I think is, is an important topic to discuss. Yours, was a little more situational, but you know, having been through the actual transaction and that whole long drawn out process, which is more like buying a house than it is more like buying a car or, or selling a house, selling a car. It's it's a long process. Um, mm -hmm. People obviously have got all their own their own motivations for getting rid of a business, and I've talked to to plenty of them that, like you said, they just wanted relief. They just, you know, give me some money, give me out. And, and I'm not just in this industry, but in others. You know, when you're running a business that's one, two, three, four million dollars a year in sales, and you're doing it pretty much by yourself as the head person, that's a huge stress. Even if you're making money, it's tough to do. Um, and I and I've seen both. Um, so everybody's got to kind of got their own motivation for, for making a sale. But you know, you were talking about people getting to that cliff of almost closing the transaction and then the seller backs out. What do you think it is that causes them to back out? Well, my guess is it's, it's a variety of things, but the first couple of things that come to mind is, is number one, if someone's been in that role and they've been doing something productive, they've been engaged in the, you know, in, in the, uh, the battle, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of, you know, adrenaline that comes along with that. I think that's part of it. It's like, what am I actually going to do with myself as much as the relief sounds good? So that I, I'm imagining that's, you know, a part of it. Um, the other part is if you don't have a secondary plan, unless you're selling your company for, you know, just massive, you know, uh, uh, just a huge, the tax hit you're going to pay is, is, is going to be, you know, capital gains. Now in Oregon, you add to that the state income tax. So for me, it was 31% oh, wow. on the gain. Holy smokes. Yeah. You take that out of it. You take in my case. It was the, the attorney. I didn't have a broker that managed the transaction, but I had an attorney involved and it was probably about at the end of the day, it was probably about the same amount. So you start chipping away at that and you're like, okay, so how long can I be idle before I have to go back, you know, um, yeah. before I have to go to work doing something. Okay. And, and so then now you're on the cliff and it's like do or die. And that is, it maybe is the first time you've really been forced to consider the reality of 
okay, now I've got a non-compete, so I can't go back to what I know how to do. <laughs> I got to go figure oh. out something else to do when the money runs out and it's gonna, and it's going to run out faster than you think. <laughs> and I, my, my guess is that's probably a combination of those two things are probably why someone would be like, man, maybe this isn't so bad. Yeah. I'll give it another couple of years, but, but I'm speculating, you know, because I, I had something I was moving to. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I've, I've talked with some folks who've been on both sides of those transactions where they got, you know, to the final hour and then, and then stopped the whole process. And I think what you're talking about is pretty well, pretty well spot on. They just, really haven't thought about, I mean, part of it, especially for a male, our identity is tied up in what we do for a living. Well, as you know, having been a, a be, currently being a business owner, having been a, a former fab shop owner, it defines a whole lot of who you are because it's not just yeah. a, a job. It's, you know, you built it from scratch and it really is a big definition of who Aaron Crowley is. And so you lose that. It's like, all right, now who am I? What do I do? You know? Not just what I do for you know. That is, what's that? How do, how do I see myself anymore? You know. Yeah, you know. I think that I would agree a hundred percent. Hearing you say that, that uh, where, where once again, you know, my my situation was unique, and that I was still going to be very much engaged in the industry that I'd spent the previous 25, 30 years. Right. And so I didn't necessarily have to confront losing that. Um, whereas if it had just been like, okay, I'm done, I'm out of the industry, I'm out of the business, you know, yeah, I, I think that's huge. Yeah. I think that's a huge part. Yeah, and that's a, that's part of part of what I do, and I work with clients. You know, the core of what I do is is change management. You know, helping a, a client understand, okay, what's what's the nature of your problem, what's the root cause, what needs to change to fix the, the problem, how do we cause that change to happen, and that's where things a lot of times get hung up is on the execution side. Um, then yeah, understanding you know getting out there making things happen. I think that's that's a big key to this now. But yeah, well, in, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say you know some of those making changes in your business before you're ready to sell. You know, and 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 contemplating some of these realities. You know, before you get to the point of like, man, I just I just gotta I gotta get out of this. Yeah, um, and I know there's a, a and most of us don't want to admit that. I mean, there was. There was definitely an aspect of that for me too. I mean, I'd been through the Great Recession. We I'd, I'd hired a GM to come in and run the company, and that had went really well until it went really terrible. And <laughs> I was wore out from that. You know, doing it again, it was like two turnarounds on the company, um, both of them self-inflicted. Uh, but I was just, man, I was just, I was tired um, yeah. and ready, you know, ready for a change. And so, and but I think to your point about the change management and as it relates to this conversation um the 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 way in which you find yourself at that cliff either hey i got here because of a plan i made changes in the business so that when i got to this point i was ready versus i'm to the point where i have to do something different because the status quo is just i just don't got any more gas left in the tank um you know and i think that's the huge defining difference in terms of how much you get for the business and how that experience goes once you sell it. Um, yeah, I think you're talking about part of it is just the difference between having a plan, you know, what is your exit strategy, what's your plan to make that happen versus all of a sudden I'm being forced into it because of health issues or something else. Certainly that's, that's yeah. a, that is, I had all that. That's a really good point of that. It really has an impact on what's your business worth, because if you've prepared it for sale, it has a bigger impact. Your your business is probably going to be a lot more valuable than if all of a sudden you have to sell because 
you know, you got a bad health health report or something. Those factors that kind of play into you know that valuation. Uh, it's just, it's just an interesting kind of give and take where you've got there are variables that the buyer is going to look at. You know, one of them is going to be profitability. Your your EBITDA or a multiple of the EBITDA is one of the ways that they establish at least a baseline value for the business. And so there's this catch-22 where if you're running that business full tilt, but you are the central cog in the wheel or the hub that keeps it all together, yeah, you may be you you may be picking up the income because in, a, in another business you need two additional managers to fill your role, which I think is, is not uncommon. I think an owner yeah. optim, you know, operating at that level you literally have to hire two people to replace an owner because of what they bring to the table. And so the buyer's looking at this going, Hey, the, the EBITDA is great, but once you're out of the picture, what, who steps in to fill that role? And if, you know, is it the new buyer um, or is he buying, you know, he, he's buying the standalone business that he hopes to continue to produce those results. And that's another part of this planning that you're talking about and being willing to change it's a give and take. You can maximize one, but that that actually ends up hamstringing you because certain buyers are not looking to come in and work 80 hours a week. <laughs> Some buyers are looking to acquire a business as an investment that they can manage from a distance or or, or even manage maybe not too far of a distance. And, and so that's going to that's going to cut into the valuation in terms of what's that transition look like and who do they have to hire and what do they have to pay them to step in and replace you? Yeah. And, and that. I think comes back to your original point about being willing to change in 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 advance of this day of wanting to sell it. Yeah, there's there's so many so many aspects to what you just said because there's the aspect of okay, buyers many times are much more educated on this whole process than sellers are, especially mm -hmm. a seller that hasn't prepared that's all of a sudden having to sell. Uh, then there's the issue of getting ready to sell. What does that number look like? And how do you how do you influence the value of the business? Um, what I like to do with clients, and this is part of the change management discussion, is help them think through what their exit strategy may be in terms of you know what do you want to do when you're not doing this anymore, and try to help them develop that picture of what's you know what that in, in looks like, what that that pot of gold in the rainbow or or that brass ring, whatever it is for them, and then figure out okay so. You you love to play golf. You want to play the great golf courses of the world. Great, let's list them. What are the green fees at St Andrews? What's it cost to go there and stay? You you start to put a dollar figure around that vision. And so once you figure out, okay, in order to do all these things, I want to do travel where I want to go, whatever. This is the kind of money I got to have. That means when your business cashes out, that's what you want to end up with additional in your savings account, so to speak. And then you got to figure out, okay, so how do I get my business to the point it's worth that? By the way, what's it worth today? This is a discussion I, I have with clients a lot is, all right, that's where you want to end up with. That means your business, when you sell it, has got to give you $3 million in cash or, or whatever the number is. So if you were to sell your business today, how close to $3 million are you? And when we start having a discussion around what drives the value of the business, that's when you realize, okay, we're we're at this level. This business was going to instead of three million, it's probably going to turn out three hundred thousand today. I got to get it to three million. How do we do that? That that's part of that change management because now we have we have a, a direction, we have a goal to go for, 
Uh, we've set a timeline. I want to do this in five years, the owner says, or I want to do this in 10 years. Now we got a timeline. And we also have some metrics we can start to track in the process. And if the owner really wants to achieve whatever that post stone business ownership vision is, if they really want to achieve that, now we've got motivation for the change management aspect. Yeah. That works out. Yeah, well. Like you said, you got to yeah, you got a target to work towards as opposed to because even if you know just changing for the sake of change, you know, if you've got a nice business that's making money, now may not have a multiple that gets you to this fantasy, you know, cash out day. Yeah. But if you don't have that as your driving motivation, man, I mean, just for no other reason, just to go, hey, well, let's just take it upon ourselves to 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 suffer all of the pain that change forces upon us in that transition, you know, without that end goal established and that clear reason why we're going to pursue that, yeah. then you're probably not going to change. <laughs> you're exactly. Just uh continue because running a bit running a fab shop in particular hard enough as it is i mean it's it's not like it's a cakewalk until you decide to change it is a tough it's a tough business yeah it, it's definitely challenging no no question about that um i think too when you look at the at, at the, the the change management aspect you know you're going from a business that may may generate three hundred thousand in cash for a sale today and you want to change it to something that generates $3 million cash five years from now, that's two totally different types of businesses. You can't continue doing what got you here is, is not necessarily going to take you to where you need to go. You got to be willing to, to adapt a lot. I like to use the example of uh, Jobs and Wozniak, Apple, Apple Computer, you know, two guys working in a garage. Neither one of them are really good at running a business. So early on, and there's, you know, there's actually, you know, Jobs' biography that came out recently kind of goes through this process. They went through a series of general managers, you know, of people running the business because they had, uh, they had, they knew they had to have somebody else running the business while they did all the product development, the marketing and all the rest of it, because they knew what their, what their core was, what they were good at. They knew they weren't good at everything. And I think that's one of the challenges that owners have, shop owners have for a, say a two to four million dollar size business, especially. They they feel like they've got to be really good at everything, and very few people truly are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you you, you look at the scale of that, and if you're using those proportions, you know, what we were just as a baseline sort of data point, the broker that did the valuation, they did a very thorough valuation of our business about a year, it was almost a year before the opportunity to sell came up. So I had that valuation just fact. I think it's down here in my box. I dig, yeah, it's right there. I mean, it was in a full on, very official. I mean, um, yeah. found the whole nine yards. He, he said that from their experience, the, the multiple, you know, sort of that standardized way of looking at EBITDA and then running it through a, uh, a the, the stone industry, they considered to be riskier than the average. And so they 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 used a two and a half to 2.8 multiplier on EBITDA. And wow. now that that was one broker, one valuation, whether yeah. that's reflective yeah. of everybody else. But let's just let's just let's just round it up to three. Um, so to sell your business for three million dollars, you gotta you gotta have a, a million dollars in verified, you know, income. Okay, so let's just back that out a little bit further. So let's just say you got a ten percent profit margin, 
That means your business has got to be doing 10 million in sales. And if you're right now doing four, that's a, that your business has to be two and a half times larger yeah. than it is today. And to your point about, you know, what it takes to, to make that leap mm -hmm. from, you know, whatever the number I said, four to 10. I mean, that yeah. is a, I mean, that's so, and I think that's really, it's jarring as an owner when you get the valuation and you realize, wow, man, this is not worth near as much as I thought it was considering how much effort I put into this over the last 20 years. Yeah. And then it's also, it's important that you you come to grips with reality to, to say what, so let's, let's just reality-based, you know, planning. We got to be at 10, the business has got to be at 10 million and it's got to be producing this income to be at that that number and um, to know that in advance, I think is so healthy uh, because I think we as owners tend to value the business based on our, our investment in it. And, uh, <laughs> and we overvalue it. I mean, that's it. And brokers will tell you that they'll tell you that every time, but you know, oh, every business yeah. owner thinks their business is worth more than it actually is. And I can, so, I can back that up. I've worked with dozens and dozens of fab shop owners and worked with literally hundreds of other uh, companies that are, you know, owner operated and and in this size and larger and some even smaller. And that that's always true. And every time I sit down and have just a rough cut, not a rough, but a kind of a not accurate, but an estimated type conversation about what their business is probably worth, uh, the, the people have actually come to tears because they realize they realize all of a sudden, wait a minute, I, I think this five million dollar business is worth ten million dollars. No, it's actually worth about five hundred thousand maybe, you know, or, or a million or something, you know, depending on, on the, on the stats. And so just understanding what drives that. And you meant you threw a few concepts out there real quick. I want to go back and kind of cover, we talked about EBITDA and multiples, and those are two of the big drivers. What, what essentially is EBITDA? Let's see here if I can, I, I threw that out there. Um, earnings before depreciation, and interest is that is that am I it's uh, interest uh, depreciation taxes and amortization I think is is the acronym it, it kind of it's it's okay. roughly equated to net profit of the business you know if you're a guy if you got a million dollar if you got a, a five million dollar business and you're doing a profit of two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year that's a five percent profit and your EBITDA is going to be somewhere in that two hundred fifty thousand dollar a year range depending on taxes depreciation a few other things. But, but it's a stand, it's, yeah, standardized way of of looking at apples to apples from business to business. Where you're looking right. at the P and L, and and you're look, you're you're backing out interest. You're backing out because you could you take a bunch of depreciation on a piece of equipment, take it on one year, and you show zero in income. You know they're gonna they're gonna factor that in. They're gonna okay. Well, we right. know you didn't make zero last year. You wrote this off, and so we're gonna add that back. And but yep. it's a it, it's an accurate way of forecasting the cash that the enterprise actually generates in its average operation and um yep. and then they take a and they'll you know they'll back out hey you got four vacations in here last year okay well that somehow you managed <laughs> to write that off we'll add that back you know yeah, yeah. They, they they are interested in in realizing how much after the bills have been paid how much cash is actually left over uh yeah. in the operation so that they can determine can this thing even pay the the, the loan <laughs> that yep. the buyer is going to need to buy the business? So we've got um, a standardized and, way of coming of 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 uh, calculating a profitability measure for the business, 
And that's both important for the buyer. It's also important because when you've got this documentation, you've got to pull together for a business. You got to not just convince the buyer that it's worth this amount of money. Who else has got to be convinced that it's worth that money? Yeah. Well, the, the, if the buyers like most buyers, they're going to a bank, someone's loaning the money. You know, a lot of people aren't walking around with two or 3 million bucks to buy a fab shop. Maybe there's a few, that was not the case in my (laughs) sale. And I mean, you want to talk about, um, not to be too crass, pulling your pants down. I mean, you, everything is exposed in that process. And the bank, um, you know, the, the broker is going to definitely have his view. He's, he's going to want to have access to all those numbers so that they can help come up with the valuation because he doesn't want to. It's just like you mentioned real estate. Broker is going to come in here and go, I got a pretty good sense. I, I do this for a living. I have a let me look at your numbers. This is what mm-hmm. this is worth. I know what buyers are looking for. Same thing. A real estate agent is going to go. Man, you're you're just be. I mean, we can list it for that, but you're never going to sell it because here's what the comps show. Yeah. So the broker, he wants access to that information so he can make a you know a legitimate valuation to take to his buyer pool. But the bank is going to be the ones that are really interested because they're the ones loaning the money, and and they they're going to take. It's going to be a very uncomfortable. There is no hiding anything in that process. <laughs> they're going to be asking a lot of questions. And, um, and that's when, so part of this, you know, this conversation about well, that answers that question. I guess I was going to, I was going to go down a rabbit trail of, <laughs> of what it means to maintain good books today. If you're thinking about selling three years from now, I think there's two, there's two common and you could probably verify this and, and call me out if this isn't true. I mean, I am happy to be corrected. Um, I've just heard this from guys that loan money on equipment that how many fab shops really aren't operating on financial statements. They're not doing accounting. They're running the business from a checkbook. Yeah. And so if all of a sudden you find yourself trying to tell a broker, Hey, I want to sell my business. Well, let's look at the financials and your financials either don't exist or they're ridiculously incomplete. Yeah. One, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to be like, this is a joke. I mean, I, as soon as the bank or the, you know, anybody looks at this, the buyer's going to want to know what, have you made money? You're telling me I'm supposed to just take your word for it. Now you've got to have legit books that you can provide them. And so if you don't, and you're, let's just, let's just say hypothetically, you got a buyer all of a sudden your dream buyer shows up. And he, the first question he's going to ask is, is well, I want to see a PL and a balance sheet for the last three years. And then I want to see your tax returns. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Yeah. If all of a sudden you've got to go recreate that, you th- it, it's just it's. If your books are tight, it's going to be a challenge to provide that information. If your books are not tight, it is going to be a, an undertaking of almost inconceivable, uh, just work to pull that together and to present it in a manner that is acceptable to a, a broker and a bank. And so even, I think the, even, the point- even then in that kind of situation, the results are going to be questioned because if your books are not tight, you don't have documentation, you can't back up what you're putting in those statements. So the, I think the bottom line is you really have to prepare for selling a business. We talked about EBITDA, we talked about multiples. And I think in the discussion of what drives the multiple, you used a three a minute ago, I've heard some different numbers when you talk about that. 
but there are several things that drive the multiple. One is the whole the the documentation and the and the the proof of what the track record for the business has been. And then there's the whole this, you talk about cog in the wheel. I use the terminology the long pole in the tent. Is the is if you pull the owner out of the business, does the tent collapse? Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so those those two. Because you know, is your buyer trying to buy a cash flow or do they want to buy a job? If they want to buy a job and the owner's long pole in the tent, not too bad a deal. But if the buyer's trying to buy a cash flow and the business doesn't run without the owner, we got a problem. So you've got both the both the preparation of the business and then you get the preparation and the ongoing aspect of all the documentation. Mm-hmm. So you were you were kind of talking about documentation and what's needed and how far back and uh, you got to have it for the banker, for the broker, and for the buyer. I've all got to understand all that. Um, you mentioned P&Ls. You mentioned balance sheets. What other kind of documentation are they? I think you got you ran in some pretty interesting circumstances in your situation that were not always common, but could be a little more common these days. Yeah, so, well, tax returns. So they they wanted three years of right. uh, profit and loss, three years of tax returns. And that's where they're going to be able, the, 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 the folks that are looking at those financial documents for a living, they start sniffing out inconsistencies, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and so that's how they go in and do their due diligence to, to and that's where that multiple is going to come in. If they're, if they're like, ah, yeah, this looks like a pretty good business, but we're going to hedge a little bit here. I mean, we're not willing to lend on that full amount because we got to pad the risk a little bit because we, we we feel these books may be a little bit suspect. I'm speculating that that's how that <laughs> yeah. conversation goes. Yeah. But that's what they asked for three years back. And in my case, they asked the bank also wanted my wanted forecast going forward. Um, so I was also showing um, even more detailed level information in terms of like number of jobs, um, the breakdown between retail and contractor business. So they were I mean, they were asking really good questions yeah. um, and, and where you're about documentation and the financial statements thankfully we had you know we would detail that in our p you know in our profit loss statement or the income statement we broke down because we wanted to know you know what what's the mix of business that we're doing or what's the mix of business that we did and how does that factor into profitability and um yeah they um i'm sure there was more information than that that uh those were the primary didn't you have some circumstances with some buildings and was there SBA loan or? Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we had, a, there were other things. Yeah. The uh, boy, I'd forgotten about that. So we owned the building um, yeah. and that, so the, so whether you lease the building or, or, or own the building, there's, that's going to become a factor in the decision because, um, and I think in particular with the fab shop, where you've got so much invested in that space in terms of electrical, plumbing, drainage, you know, the equipment set up in there and the cost of moving a fab shop is so ridiculously expensive. They, they want to know that that lease is secure. And so there's this handoff between the landlord. If, if it's a landlord situation, in my case, you know, we had to agree to a 10 year lease. That was what the bank required wow. for them to loan. They wanted to know that the new owner had that security built in that they weren't going to lose the lease and have $150,000 moving expense five years from now. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't that I ever was told what the term of the loan was. Right. Um, but you know, that was a part of it is, is like, Hey, wow. so that, yeah. So then we had to go and um, 
as a landlord, you know, that became part of the transaction. That was a separate transaction doing all the, oh, okay. It just came to me. I knew there was a big, a gigantic element of this data that comes into that transaction. Um, but anyway, the lease, we had to have that in place. And for us, one of the things that we were not anticipating, so the SBA loan that I had for buying the building when we had purchased that um, stipulated that I could not, I could not, I see, how did that, how was that worded? I had to occupy as the owner of the countertop company because that was what justified the purchase. Right. I had to occupy 51% of that building. And so all of a sudden, this entire business sale hinged on whether or not I could go back out and get a conventional loan on the building. Um, and that was an unforeseen detail that created a massive amount of work and stress in the middle of still trying to run the business. Yeah. <laughs> and a good period of time, we, this was all going on and none of my employees had any idea that this was underway. And so you've got got to run the business. I got all this stuff. The bank's breathing down my neck. The buyer's breathing down my neck. They're wanting to come take tours of my shop. And people are asking who's those random people walking around you know, <laughs> the showroom in the shop last night. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got things like this that you just can't anticipate. And there's probably other things that, you know, in other situations where, you know, that, 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 that factor into this, um, the, in, in my case, the loan that the, the buyer was getting to purchase the business. But the, the thing I was going to mention that just came to mind was the way that the work in process was valued. And so long in advance, they're asked where this conversation comes up. So we're going to buy this. It's a very interesting kind of, it is a rabbit trail, but it's fascinating. And, and I think why it's relevant was the amount of work that went into actually coming up with this number that we had to provide at closing um it not to be underestimated the amount of additional work that goes into selling the business while you're running it it is it it, it was many times as onerous and just reality yeah. as i would have ever believed it could have been um and so we had to provide a template in advance of this so there's going to be this closing date right we're going to just like you buy a house and and on that day they're going to they're going to calculate the taxes that the original owner you know would have been had to have paid up to that point and then you're going to pay those and it's in the middle of the month so there's that calculation well the same thing was true we got this business running and i got all these jobs that have been sold that have been contracted. Some of them haven't been started yet, but I've got deposits on all those jobs and I've got contracts for them. Then I got jobs that I've templated. So I've invested some of my labor, but that's going to be installed and the new owner of the business is going to actually collect on that when it sells. And so you've got all these jobs at various stages of production that are going to, that have to be somehow valued yeah. on that day when you close. And and the list of, so that was two different things. That was a work in progress that we had to value, evaluate. And yeah. then we had to prove, and then we had to actually go back and change all of our contracts because our contracts did not, <laughs> it's really interesting. Those people contracted with my company to do that job and wrote me a check. And I put that in the bank. Now I had right. to account for that in, in closing, but we had to go back. And 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 essentially explain to people, hey, oh, by the way, we're in the process of selling the business. 
Um, and, and we need to get your permission to in this handoff. And so we immediately changed the terms of our contract so that anything that was sold going forward, we didn't have to go do that for. But there were jobs that, that required that level of to be legal. And and because you're going to it's a legal process at closing. You're in a title company. You're at the escrow office with an escrow agent. And man, um, the other part of it is all of the loans that you've gotten. And if you need to stop me, if I'm just going completely <laughs> off the rails here, uh, you know, down this rabbit trail, but it's coming back to me now. This is the, 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 the I, I can, I can, because I've got the video and our listeners won't have it. I'm watching the flashbacks growing across Aaron's face from time to time as he's re-experiencing all this. But I, this all goes back, I think, to, to having somebody that helps you navigate the process because it's obviously much more complex than, than, than selling a house, selling a car, anything like that. There's a lot involved because this is as part of its core kind of manufacturing business where you've got sequential process steps that add value to the product. And at some point yeah. you're going to, you're going to draw a line in the sand. That's the end of the existing business, the beginning of the new one. What is each of them owed or owe each other? And, and figuring out all those details is something people just don't think about. That's a, that's a lot of additional, as you're talking about additional paperwork and, and preparation and, and get everybody to agree that, yeah, this is a valid number. Yeah, and, and and you're right. And we had to come up with that template in advance and, and say, well, here's what we think and here's how we think we should value this. You know, what do you think? Well, we'll take that back to our attorney and broker and, and we'll get back to you and tell you what we think is, you know. Uh, and that's, you know, one of many, you know, elements of that. And the other thing was that that just came to mind where there's no there's no funny business possible because if you've got loans for example like we had just bought a new piece of equipment that was not paid off yet yeah um all of a sudden you can't just that's not assumable you can't just lump that in you you've got to go back and show payoff dates you've got to go to your lenders they got to tell you what the payoff is on the day of closing right yeah and they've got to and and so it's just and if you've got you know a loan on a couple of truck payments and you got a couple of pieces of equipment you're still paying on all of a sudden you're going back and it's like I haven't thought about that lender since you know we bought the piece of equipment we've just been writing checks ever since and now all of a sudden we got to go get this documentation and provide yeah. that yeah and and so yeah, it's a Part of we, we talked about multiples a while back um, you know EBITDA and multiples and and the way those are used is the to, to value a business you figure out that standard measure of profitability EBITDA and then you multiply it by a number and you said that your information was like two and a half to three is the multiple uh, I've got a friend of mine who's a CPA who actually ran a fab shop for a few years and he says that at least in the southeast that multiple runs something like three to six depending um and so that, and one of the things that impacts that somebody has to make a decision on the multiple and one of the things that impacts the decision on the multiple is how tight are your processes? How good a documentation do you have? Is it clear? Is it backed up? Do your P&Ls and balance sheets jive with your tax returns and your bank accounts? Does all that make sense? Yeah, there are. There are. And that, and that was another bit of information. We had to provide the headcount. I mean, I had to write up a, a summary of every employee in the company, how long they'd worked for the company. What did they make? What were their job duties? Yeah. You know, and, and if you think you got 20 employees, it's like, well, that's a day's work right there. That's a day. I mean, by the time I think through all that and, and get all that information together and put it into a format where I can provide it. But again, there 
they want to know, okay, you can say the business runs on its own, on its own, but who I want to know who on this org chart yep. is running the business. When you're not here. Um, and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta support that. Um, you gotta uh, it's that. also kind of a, not that I intended to do this, but I'm sitting here looking at my bookcase and to just do a shameless plug, your book, uh, less chaos, more cash, right. Is, 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 all about pulling that documentation together or making that part of how you run your business anyway. And I think we both agree that a, a company, a, a fab shop that followed that, that formula and did the type of documentation that you advocate in the book. I think that's, that's something that enhances the multiple, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. And, and as I've, you know, kind of delved further into this, you know, kind of discipline of business sales and M&A and that kind of stuff, I and mean, just have been a little more interested in it. Yeah. That, that is a huge variable in terms of the value of a company. And it really comes back to what you said. If you got, I mean, if you've got a guy out there that's, he wants to pay millions of dollars for a job. I mean, I think those guys actually do exist. So that's not to say that they don't, I, yeah. they're probably the exception to the rule. Um, but more than likely you've got somebody who's, who's buying a business that they, they kind of hope they can maybe optimize it, take what's there and, and, and expand it or build on it. But yeah, they're looking for, uh, a, a seasoned management team, processes in place, a method in terms of how the, the business works, especially if you've got somebody from outside the industry that's 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 coming in. And it's like, I don't know any of the technical stuff here, but I can run the business. Is there a business here to run? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, those those processes and that um, you know, your management team uh, are, are hugely valuable to certain buyers um, and maybe even you know, maybe even deal breakers for some because they're they're truly looking for a business to run or to own, not run. Um, yeah, they, they want to own it. They want to have the the make the big big heavy decisions, and then they're basically buying cash flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's how that that all kind of boils down to it. So as you can tell from that conversation, uh, as I mentioned ahead of time, that's not highly structured, but we covered a lot of good information. Hopefully, that's helpful for you. And again, our next episode we're going to, is going to be a little bit shorter, and we're going to talk about how how he handled his employees, how he introduced them to the new owner, and how he was able to keep his employees comfortable with the process and the transition so that um, the new owner was able to, to keep that expertise and that experience and keep the continuity of business. So we'll look for our next episode shortly. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fabricator's Coach Podcast. If you've got any additional questions about this particular episode or anything else, please check us out at fabricatorscoach.com. Thanks.